The second lesson is written in the 8th chapter of Romans, beginning at the 31st verse. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. O Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Eternal Father, Thou hast said, without me you can do nothing. In faith, I embrace Thy words, O Lord, and bow before Thy goodness. Help me to complete the work I'm about to begin for Thine own glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Waiting for the first slide. Thank you. That prayer hangs on the wall of my office above the the computer. It's a reminder of how frail and dusty our human efforts are. And it's also a proclamation of the power of the Lord. While we can do nothing without him, all things are possible through him. In the words of Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a message that resounds in the story of David and Goliath. In this great painting by the Baroque artist Caravaggio, we see the climactic moment of victory as David raises the severed head of Goliath. The scripture reading today covers the culmination of a larger story which starts the beginning of 1 Samuel 17. The Philistine army has invaded the land of Judah. The men of Israel under King Saul assemble to fight off the invaders. The opposing forces meet at the Valley of Elah. This is a valley with high ground on each side. The Philistine army is encamped on one ridge and across the valley on the opposite hill is the army of Israel. Being on high ground is a military advantage that neither side wants to abandon. Then the most gigantic warrior walks out of the Philistine camp, approaching the other camp, close enough to shout insults. His name's Goliath and he's from the Philistine town of Gath. One question that often comes up is, 
just how big was Goliath? Well, a popular translation of scripture says he was six cubits and a span. Uh, That would make him over nine feet tall. The tallest man recorded in modern times was about nine feet tall. Remember, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Some of the old Hebrew texts of scripture, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those that were the basis for the Septuagint say Goliath of Gath was four cubits and a span. That would make him around six foot nine, which is notably taller than Pastor Bruce, but shorter than Shaquille O'Neal. In those ancient times when the average man was shorter than I am, Goliath would have been astounding if he were even six foot nine. The Bible rarely spends time talking about the personal appearance of an individual, but we have a long description of the Philistine warrior Goliath. Not only is he a mountain of a man, he possesses the most advanced technology of the age. And it's described in detail because that technology is something that his Israelite opponents lack. Do you know what that technology was? Iron. It's much harder than bronze, which had been around for a couple of millennia. Making iron tools and weapons is a secret technology carefully guarded by the Philistines because others in the area, like the Israelites, do not possess this knowledge. It gives the Philistines greater power. They control the production of iron implements, selling and servicing them. They can charge high prices since they alone possess the recipe. They can refuse to sell iron weapons or sell them only at exorbitant prices. Now here's what the Bible says about the Philistines' iron monopoly in 1 Samuel 13. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Did you catch that last part? This iron technology is so restricted that in all the land of Israel, there are only two iron swords. They're owned by King Saul and his son, Jonathan. So when Goliath steps up covered in metal, he's quite a sight. In addition to his sheathed iron sword... He wears a helmet and armor on his body and legs. He has a bronze javelin, a spear with a 15-pound iron spearhead, and a full-length shield. A hulking foe, Goliath is a man of iron and bronze, displaying the best of the latest technology. If you were a Philistine, Goliath would be your superhero And Goliath knows he's great. 
He has no problem with self-esteem. He has every reason to trust in his own power. Goliath calls out the Israelites, challenging them to send one of their own into one-on-one combat with him. This battle of champions will determine a victor rather than having both armies go at it. King Saul or one of his great warriors should step up to this challenge, but they're all greatly afraid. No one comes forward to meet Goliath. So every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine approaches the men of Israel, trash-talking the quavering Israelite troops. We have to admit it's no wonder the men of Israel fail to volunteer for the fight. Humiliation seems certain. Death's a pretty sure thing, too. Loss of honor and loss of life is a discouraging duo. But David will step up to the challenge that warriors recoil from. You see, there are two things David knows. Here's the first one. His people cannot win if no one steps up and takes the shot. An obvious observation. But... Fear is a formidable foe. How often do we shy away from doing difficult things because of the fear of failure? It's possible to hesitate so much that nothing gets done no matter how important it is. The great hockey player Wayne Gretzky was once challenged by a reporter on the number of times he took a shot and didn't get a goal. You miss 100% of the shots you never take, was his reply. How true. David has a goal that can only happen if he steps up and takes the shot. Now here's the second thing that David knows. It's not about his power. It's the power of God that will win the day. So here's how it plays out. One morning, young David is in the Israelite camp running messages and supplies from his father to his older brothers in the army. When David hears the insulting words and sees the swagger of this Philistine, he's filled with righteous indignation and volunteers. After 40 days of challenges, and no man of Israel stepping forward. Apparently, King Saul's willing to take whomever he can get. David is called a youth by the king, and David's older brothers clearly do not consider him a member of the army. In fact, his eldest brother accuses him of showing up just to watch the battle. But desperate times call for desperate majors, And King Saul loans young David the king's own body armor, helmet, and sword. Remember, it's one of only two swords in the kingdom. Uh, David declines this unwieldy and unfamiliar gear, instead arming himself with the weapon he knows well, his sling. Now, the next thing I'm going to say is important. David's sling was not a child's toy like this one. His sling was a weapon of war. 
But when we hear sling, we think about a slingshot we might have played with as a child, something that's basically a forked stick with a big rubber band. This is not at all what David used. The deadly weapon that David brings to battle is a warrior's tool. Ancient armies had divisions of slingers just as they had squads of archers who could inflict lethal damage on their foes. Accurate and deadly from long range, these slings hurled softball-sized rocks at a velocity that could crush skulls and break bones. Now here on the left, you see a model of an ancient type of sling, and on the right, a relief sculpture from the 8th century BC, depicting Assyrian warriors whirling slings in the air in synchronized battle formation to let them fly at the same time. By the way, these Assyrians will build a formidable and vicious empire which will ravage Israel about 300 years after David's time. So when David engages Goliath with his sling, he's far enough away that Goliath has not even unsheathed his iron sword. They are close enough to shout at each other, though. Here's the Baroque sculptor Bernini showing David coiling, preparing to whip a smooth rock into the forehead of Goliath. Imagine the two armies standing on opposite ridges. Everyone's eyes are on the great warrior Goliath, shouting derisively at the approaching David. A good-looking but still pink-cheeked David is a joke to Goliath who boasts that this kid's about to become carrion, dead flesh, left to be devoured by the birds and beasts of the field. David shouts the insult right back, and then one-ups him. Here's his reply. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philippines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Running, David takes a great stone from his bag, setting it in the sling and then letting it fly. The stone strikes a fatal blow, crushing the forehead of the great Goliath. Running to the downed body, David draws Goliath's sword from its sheath, beheading him. There are now three iron swords in Israel. With Goliath defeated, the Philistines flee with the suddenly emboldened army of Israel in hot pursuit for ultimate victory. Now here are some things we can take away from this story. First of all, Goliath looks like an insurmountable obstacle. Life's hurdles, including serving God with all we have, can be scary. 
you don't succeed on your own by your own power, but you can do anything with God's power behind you. As a personal example, I'll tell you that the road to my becoming a pastor has been a steep one, a road with many obstacles. But I know for sure I'm not in this pulpit today because of what I am or what I have done. The Lord calls and leads. He is the one who overcomes and enables. Being scared is often justified. Courage is about doing it anyway. Think about David and his sling stepping forward as the servant of the Lord and with the help of the Almighty. David knows victory can be won. A sling and rocks are what he brings. God brings the rest. Think about the other guys in the army of Israel. Many of them would be familiar with the sling, a common weapon, but none of them come forward. David faces the same foe with the same skills they could have brought forth. The victory could have gone to someone else, but no one else steps up or trusts in the Almighty. Who do you identify with in this story? Most of us are not David or Goliath. We are like the scared men who watch, sure that they do not have what it takes. When David runs toward the terrifying giant, he looks like a little hopeless guy. What can't be seen is the power of faith and the power of God. It's the secret weapon in the story. Today, there are still big barriers to our walk in faith. Sometimes we look at them and think, it would take a miracle to overcome this. Are you reluctant to step up and start a new ministry thinking you may not have what it takes to make it a success? Have you hesitated to work with kids fearing that you might not have the skills to do it perfectly? Do you see an opportunity to share your Christian faith but fail to act on it? Perhaps you're reluctant to sacrifice your time and treasure to make it happen. After all, what if it didn't work out? What if you were to fail? Wouldn't that be humiliating and miserable? Guess what? Every good thing, every profitable program, every great lesson here at church began with a person having those same thoughts and fears. Every time I teach a class, preach a sermon, plan a special event, lead worship, I face them too. But service to God is about listening to what he prompts and then prayerfully doing what he wills. Don't be surprised that the hard things, the right things, are often difficult and scary. Faith-filled courage is not about fearlessness. It's about doing the work of God in spite of fears while leaning on the Lord. Amen.